Well, imagine with me a high school house party. Parents out of town. The music is bumping. People are dancing. Cheetos crunched into the carpet. Some drinking or maybe a lot of drinking. Kids are everywhere. The place is an absolute mess. And then the parents roll into the driveway. They've come home early. And in that moment, everything changes. Probably all of us have seen this cliche or classic scene in movies, TV. Maybe some of us have even experienced a moment like this firsthand. But whether you can relate to the scene or not, we have all had the experience when an authority shows up and in that moment, everything changes. An authority shows up and in that moment, everything changes. By the way, Pastor Michael is going to be out of town in Erbil, Iraq this next week. I don't think he'll be coming back early, so if you want to come and hang out with the church staff and the office, we're going to be having a great time this week. When the big cat is away, the mice will play. But when the big cat comes home, party's over. Last week, we heard the lion's roar, the impending arrival of God in the beginning of the book of Amos. Today, the lion shows up. The lion is here. We don't merely hear his roar, but we feel his hot breath on our necks. The lion pounces, and when the lion is finished, well, there's not much left. But Amos doesn't merely go to the metaphor of a lion to describe the Lord's coming judgment. The dominant image in our text today is a courtroom scene. The Lord has arrived as judge to judge Israel. So Amos, this 8th century B.C. prophet to the nation of Israel, seems to call out, All rise, all rise, the most honorable Lord and judge has entered the courtroom. He's here. We're about to watch Israel stand trial, be sentenced for the crimes that we thought about last week in Amos 2 and 3. We're going to listen to Israel's trial this morning and hear her sentencing in Amos 3 through 6. Amos 3 through 6. Maybe you're down for some courtroom drama this morning. But even so, this text begs the question, and really all of Amos begs the question, so what? So what? What does Israel's judgment in Amos have to do with my life today? With the things I'm struggling with? Friends, Israel's judge is our judge. The judge has not changed. The judge of yesterday is the judge of today and is our coming judge. And this judgment is meant to wake us up, to serve as a warning and an invitation for us. It's meant to serve as a warning and an invitation for us. It was, it was too late for Israel. Too late for Israel, but it's not too late for us. There's still time to prepare, to face the judgment of our Lord and God. And prepare we must. I've entitled this sermon, Prepare to Meet Your God. Prepare to Meet Your God. 
The Lord's coming entails at least three changes in Amos 3 through 6. I'll give you my three points, one at a time as we go along, and prepare yourself for the main idea and a longer conclusion at the end. Uh, Before we dive in, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who has spoken in your word, and we pray now that you would have your way with us. Lord, we pray that you would give us the attention to your word, that we might listen to your word, that we would return to you in repentance and be changed even as we listen today. Oh Lord, may we not be like ancient Israel who heard your word and then did nothing to change. But Lord, help us. May your word change us as you work through your Holy Spirit. Be with us now. Come, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, when he shows up, time's up. Point one, when he shows up, time's up. I'd invite you to turn to Amos 3.9. Amos 3.9. You can find that on page 8.13 of the Pew Bibles. And I'd actually recommend that you would use physical Bibles this morning because we're going to be doing a lot of jumping back and forth in the text between these four chapters. I think a physical Bible will serve you better this morning than a Bible app on your phone, unless you're really snappy there with your phone. Listen to God's word in Amos 3.9. Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt. Assemble on the mountains of Samaria and see the great turmoil in the city and the acts of oppression within it. The people are incapable of doing right. This is the Lord's declaration. Those who store up violence and destruction in their citadels. Ashdod was the Philistines. Egypt, they're called as witnesses. They're called to the stand as witnesses against Israel, which is kind of ironic. The pagan nations recognize that as evil as they are, things have gotten much worse in Israel. Just as we considered last week, the pagan nations committed a whole catalog of crimes against humanity. But Israel's crimes that you can read about in Amos 1 and 2, they surpassed them all. Rather, Amos 2 and 3. Even Egypt and Ashdod recognize that Israel, what does the text say, is incapable of doing right. The Lord is siding with the nations against his own people. In this trial, Israel's crime is clear. The crime is clear. The question is, what's going to be the punishment? What's Israel's punishment? Let's keep reading. Amos 3.11. Therefore, the Lord God says, an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. So the Lord declares that he's going to bring an enemy to destroy the very symbols of strength that Israel hoped in. You know, Israel had used her strength to store up security for herself, to oppress the poor, to store up violence. And those very same strongholds are now the symbol of Israel's defeat. Israel's caught in her own net, so to speak, and she's going to be exiled from the land of promise. Let's keep reading. Amos 3.12. The Lord says, as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed 
or the cushion of a couch. Now, this is kind of random. It, it feels like a, a random scene, like in an artsy indie horror film. We're in the middle of this courtroom scene, and then we have this scene. It's like this gruesome carnage after a lion's kill. Uh, don't misunderstand the image here. Israel's not saved by the skin of her teeth. No, all that is left of Israel is like a piece of an ear or two severed legs. At the end of verse 12, the metaphor shifts back to a burned down house. After the fire, what's left? Like a little piece of a bed laying around, couch cushion. Israel's house has burned to the ground. Amos 3, 13 through 15. Listen and testify against the house of Jacob. This is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. I will punish the altars of Bethel on the day I punish Israel for its crimes. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. Friends, time is up for Israel. The Lord has come. The horns of the altar, which symbolize great strength for the nation, fallen off. Israel had clung to those kind of in a superstitious hope, like, hey, we got the altar, we got the temple, we're fine, we're strong. But the Lord is saying here, when you turn the Lord into a rabbit's foot, your salvation is about as likely as a severed rabbit's foot saving you from a hungry lion. You know, the altars of Bethel, which were once a place where God's, where Jacob called on the name of the Lord and the Lord met with him, well, now the Lord comes again. But this time in judgment against his own people. He smashes their vacation homes. He crushes these homes that Israel had put her hope in. It's over for Israel. Which begs the question, but what about for us? Will the Lord judge us differently because, you know, the New Testament and all that Jesus stuff. No, the Lord will, who's the just judge, will judge us just as he judged Israel if we put our hope ultimately in man-made things. When we begin to think that a coming vacation, retirement, or a new home will be what makes us happy, what makes us secure. When we turn God into a rabbit's foot, forgetting those things, when we use him to get the things that we really want, then God hates our retirement. He hates our vacation. And he hates our home. If we live for those things, I think we're seeing here in this text, the Lord says, you can vacation and retire and build your home in hell. Amos is making the same point in Amos 6. I'd invite you to turn over to Amos 6, verse 8. Amos 6, 8. The Lord has sworn by himself, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels. So I will hand over the city and everything in it. Did you hear how the Lord summarizes the root of Israel's crime? I loathe Israel's pride or Jacob's pride. 
the Lord God loathes pride. Do you think that's changed? The Lord loathes pride of men and women. Boys and girls, the Lord loathes pride of nations. The Lord loathes pride of churches. Does this mean that we shouldn't take pride, like say, in a job well done at work or be proud of our kids? No, I think the Apostle Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Now, Israel thought that she was beyond God's judgment because of all the blessing and the prosperity, because of the altar. She stood in her own strength with her walls, her gates, her citadels. Other nations feared her, and so she became proud. She was not prepared for the day when the Lord would come and find her standing in her own strength. What about you? If you were to be put on trial, would you be found guilty of pride? Consider for a moment with me, where do you struggle with pride? Where do you struggle with pride? Where do you think you stand? What are your citadels? You know, if you don't know, if you're kind of coming up blank there, just like the pagan nations around Israel testified against her, there's actually a pretty good chance that your non-Christian family and friends could tell you what you take pride in. I think for us, uh, our summer homes, our winter homes, are maybe literally those things, or there are our bank accounts, our investments, you know, personally, I'm by no means wealthy, but I've always been a disciplined saver. Uh, ever since I was 16, when I was working for McDonald's, I've always had about at least $1,000 in my bank account. Now, that number's relative. But I can be tempted to think that my security comes from my discipline in saving my money, meeting my financial goals, and having money saved up for a rainy day, an emergency. But if I'm not careful, my very means of security could become my downfall. I know for many of us who are young and healthy, we can take pride. We can stand in our, our own health. Our, our, we work out. We eat well. We haven't had any major health issues. But whether it be covid or just growing older, the Lord has a way of crushing the very things that we tend to sometimes literally stand in and take our pride in. Friends, when the Lord shows up for Israel, time's up. For Israel, it was too late. Judgment had already been passed. Israel's judgment for her pride is a warning for us today. So will you take this judgment on Israel to heart? Will you tremble at the finality of God's judgment against the proud? Well, we've seen so far that when the Lord shows up, time's up. He will rage against our pride and the idols of our heart and bring his good and just judgment to bear. You think that Amos would be finished here, right? We've got, we've got the trial, the sentencing, even images like Amos 3.12 of the execution. 
But the Lord has more to say to Israel and to us. Our second point is much like the first. But instead of the wickedness of what Israel did, Amos focuses on what Israel failed to do, what she neglected. Point two, when he shows up, the party's over. When he shows up, the party's over. Turn to Amos 4, 1. Amos 4, 1. Listen to this message. You cows of Bashan, you who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, eh, bring us something to drink. Now in their prosperity, women of Israel had indulged their senses thoughtlessly. Compares them, not very politically correct, to the cows of Bashan. Instead of Proverbs 31, women, like women of old, like Esther or Naomi from Ruth, we have women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Also, kind of sins of neglect so that they can enjoy a glass of wine with their friends. But it's not just the women who are guilty. Turn over to Amos 6, verse 1. Amos 6, 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. Skip down to verse 4. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their cushions. They dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They're doing karaoke. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You know, the women of chapter 4 that we consider, they're living for the next drink. But the men at ease in Zion, they're drinking wine by the bucketfuls, by the bowlfuls. Rather than grieve and mourn injustice in the land, they've doled their consciences with the finest oils and luxuries in life. They're, they're enjoying the good life. Hashtag blessed, the bull market. The man rationalized their luxurious living. They're like, well, David, you know, David liked to have a good time. King David. You know, he was always singing. He liked to party. But unlike King David, these men never sing songs of lament or repentance. What does the Lord say to us today through this word to Israel? Does he not want us to have fun, to drink wine? We look at Amos 4 and 6 and we think, well, you know, I should be okay. Because even though I like to have a good time, I'm not oppressing the poor. Plus, I don't even like wine that much. I'm more of a whiskey guy. Friends, Amos isn't a party pooper. He isn't against the joy, wine, and enjoying God's gifts. But he is warning us of the danger of these good things causing us to forget the giver. The danger of taking the Lord for granted the danger of becoming more excited about the things that God gives us so that slowly we drift down that river and neglect worship and true gratitude. We can become like spoiled children in our prosperity. We don't have much time anymore with all the good times to, to grieve our sin, to consider the plight of the poor, or to consider God's coming judgment. You know, Amos warns us here of how prosperity and how even drinking can cause complacency and neglect. So let's talk about drinking. 
If you drink, is your drinking causing you to neglect caring for others? You know, are your social times of drinking dulling your senses when it comes to considering God's holiness and the priorities of the Lord? You know, if, if you go to a party or if you host a party, whether there's alcohol there or not, are you considering the lonely in your community and in our church? Do you seek to do others spiritual good when you get together? Do you ever use it as a time to prepare to encounter God? Or is that just for the church, the church times, you know, when, when we gather on Sunday? We, we do that stuff at church. You know, drinking here in Amos seems to be a picture of how luxurious living leads to a false sense of security. Uh, we can hope in the things of this world as we considered in the first point, and I think whether we make $20,000 a year or $120,000 a year, we are all rich and prosperous, relatively speaking, to the rest of the world and to history. Uh, We are more well-off in so many ways than the kings and the queens of 8th century B.C. So here's my question for us. Are our riches causing us to thank God or to forget Him? Could your riches and even your alcohol be used as evidence against you as they are for Israel here in Amos 4.6. Might the Lord condemn us for the sin of what we could have done with our wealth and our prosperity? That's the thing about neglect, right? Israel is condemned not really for what she does here. Drinking wine in of itself is not evil. It's that her drunkenness and her parties led to neglect, neglect of the poor, uh, failure to be generous, neglect of worship. So what priorities of the Lord do you tend to neglect? What priorities of the Lord do we tend to neglect as the church? Uh, Do the blessings of the Lord in our lives ever lead to spiritual complacency, to apathy? If so, who are you going to talk to about that this week? If you're feeling apathetic or complacent in your walk with the Lord, who are you going to talk to about that this week? This warning is meant to cause us to put off spiritual neglect and to put on generosity. And I will say that I am so encouraged by this church and the generosity that, they've, that you guys have even shown my family. Uh, Several years ago, we had a bike trailer stolen off our back deck and an anonymous church neighbor and friend. We found the cash in our mailbox that very afternoon to replace that bike trailer. When my mom was in a horrible bike accident nine years ago, she's recovered now, but the, the church, you guys, paid so that our whole family could fly back to Kentucky so that we could be with her during that time. And it's not just my family who's been the recipient of your generosity, of your care. Uh, You give generously to the Benevolence Fund, and even just this last week or the last couple weeks, your giving, your generosity has been a blessing to the working poor in our church. Uh, Your giving has supported Afghan Christians 
to help resettle them. You guys gave $5,000. So the elders agreed to give $5,000 of the money that you had given to help resettle these Afghan Christians after fleeing the Taliban. So, friends, as we approach the holiday season, it's so easy to, to dream and to look forward to you know, that, that time with, with family, that comfort, nice meals, good drink, the, all the things that give us the warm fuzzies about the holidays. But as a church, let's use what God has given us, not just to serve ourselves, not just to bless ourselves. Don't be like Israel, who neglected to bless the poor because she was feeling so blessed and prosperous. So as we enter the Advent season, friends, I'd encourage us, remember who it is that we're celebrating. Remember who it is that we're celebrating. A God who visited us and gave everything for our sake so that we might know that it really is more blessed to give than to receive because this is his way. This is the way of the Lord. And if you don't walk in this way of generosity, your very riches will condemn you. God will crush you. Happy holidays. Well, that brings us to our third point and kind of final point. But remember, there's a longer conclusion at the end. Point three. When he shows up, the music dies. When he shows up, the music dies. Bye bye, Israel. Look at Amos 5, 21 through 23. I hate I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fat and cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. God doesn't merely hate Israel's pride. He hates the ritual of Israel's false worship. He hates their hypocrisy. Their songs are not music to his ears. It's as if a wife knows her husband is cheating on him, on her. But on their anniversary, the husband sends roses even while he is with the other woman. You think the wife appreciates those flowers? In the same way, God does not appreciate the praise and worship nights that Israel is holding. Israel has gone overboard on this ritual, as we'll see in the next passage, perhaps to make up for her guilt. But that is not the only thing that Israel has gone overboard with. God tells Israel to go to hell with her song and dance routine. He's had enough. Look back at Amos 4.4. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifice every morning and your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thanksgiving sacrifice and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration, declaration of the Lord God. Can you hear Amos' sarcasm? Israel was not required to bring sacrifices every morning, but once a year. She wasn't required to bring the tithe every three days, but every three years. But as one commentator wrote about this passage, if the act is everything, the more the merrier. You see what Israel's religion has become? A worship of self. When they praise God with their lips, they're really just looking at themselves in the mirror. Oh man, I sound good today. 
They have made God and their remade God in their own image. The whole sacrifice bit has really nothing to do with God. It's all about them. They're really making sacrifices for themselves. It's a celebration of them. This is an exercise to feel better about ourselves. I feel so good when I go to the temple, worship seems to be working. They feel great, but God is not pleased. God is not pleased. What about us? Is Israel the only ones guilty of false worship like this? You know, if God decided to leave this worship service, what we're all participating in right now alone, and his presence were not with us, would this service be any different? What about for you? If the Holy Spirit wasn't working in you, as you listen even to this message, would your response be any different? Are we just going through the motions sometimes? I think all too often we, like Israel, have a worship that devolves into worship of self. We seek to use God and corporate worship to feel better about ourselves. A worship that devolves into worship of self isn't really that difficult to identify. I think we all feel this. And I think it's even harder today. Uh, we are trained from an early age today uh, to think as consumers. You know, sermon, the, sermons, though, songs, prayers, they don't come with a like button. They don't come with a like button. Sermons and songs of worship of the Lord aren't for liking. They are a means to worship God. And yet, how many times are we guilty of thinking to ourselves, you know, I don't really like that song. Eh, it's, eh. I find it difficult to worship. Not a fan. Uh, that, I don't like that tune. No offense, but God doesn't care about your personal preferences when it comes to musical style for corporate worship. We sing for two reasons. To encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ and to make much of a holy God. And yet, all too often, we use the very time that we gather to do that to think about ourselves. So don't sing loud to impress your neighbor. Sing to encourage your brother or sister. And remember that God sees your heart. God help us. So how you feel about the style of the music or the quality of the music has more to do with you than it has to do with your response to the living God. Well, if God rejects our empty worship, what does he want from us? What does he want from us? What does he require of us? We're honing in. We're getting closer to the center of Amos' message. Turn with me to Amos 4.6. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain, while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied. Yet, you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees. Yet you did not return to me. 
This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Some of these images may seem random to us. Like, what's up with the blight and the mildew? But if we were to look back, we won't turn there now, if we were to look back to Deuteronomy 28, we see that what the Lord is doing is he's bringing the covenant curses upon his people for abandoning him. They broke the covenant. Now here come the curses. So when blight and mildew come, Israel was to know. We know where this is coming from. We know why this is here. This is exactly what God promised if we forgot him. You know, further, Israel had become like Egypt, like Sodom and Gomorrah, ancient enemies of the Lord and of his people. God is saying, I treated you as an enemy. But what was the purpose of these attacks? What was the purpose of these curses? I hope you saw the rhythm. It's repeated each time. They might return to him, but they did not. The Lord wasn't interested in more worship songs or more sacrifices. He didn't want more ritual. He didn't want more sacrifices. He desires that we return to him. God desires repentance. Now, even amid the curses and being treated as God's enemy, Israel was given multiple chances to return to the Lord, her God. But instead, what did she do? She ran further from him. God hasn't changed on this matter. Hinson, what does God require of us? What does he require of you? God isn't impressed by our religious performance. He is not, we may be proud, you know, that our theology is biblical, that our preaching is polished, that our prayers are long, and that our music rocks. We may have all nine marks of a healthy church. But if these are the things that cause us to think about ourselves more than the Lord of the church, then we're in trouble. And remember, I'm so glad that you are here. And I hope the Lord never moves you from this place. But if in the Lord's sovereignty, he one day does move you from Henson. I hope that you would be okay being a part of a church that doesn't necessarily have as excellent of preaching as we get from Pastor Michael or as long of prayers or as polished of a service, but that you would be okay being a part of a church that is characterized by repentance, that is walking humbly with the Lord our God. You know, when, when God comes again, he's not going to care how great our services is, are or how solid our theology is. He's looking for people who respond to that amazing theology of who God is in repentance. So whether you're a pillar member of this church or a backsliding Christian or whoever you are, 
The Lord has one job for us. Return to me. Return to him in repentance. So will you listen? We must turn to him. Because believe it or not, he is coming for us. He is coming for us. Turn to Amos 4.12. Therefore, Israel, that is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here. The one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. When I read these verses to my kids after dinner earlier this week, I asked them, what do you think God is saying to his people? Is God's coming going to be a good thing for his people or a bad thing? And Iris, my 10-year-old, says, I think God's saying, brace yourselves, people. This is not going to be a good thing. Iris is correct. Israel thought that the day of God's coming would be great for her, that God would bring judgment on her enemies, that he'd bring even more blessing. But simply being called Israel was no protection. So as the music dies... We wonder, what now? Israel's dead. What's left to talk about? Only the center of Amos' prophecy. I'd invite you, you can look right now at the insert that you maybe got in your bulletins with the structure of our passage. This is the structure of the center of Amos according to Greg Gilbert, who preached here a few weeks ago. Uh, We've provided this so that you can see where Israel's judgment is all leading. We're going to conclude with the center of Amos' prophecy here in chapter 5. And that brings us to our main idea for this morning. When the Lord shows up, everything changes. When the Lord shows up, everything changes. The center of Amos' message begins with the funeral. The party songs have died. The lament and wailing over Israel's doom now begins. Look at Amos 5.2. She has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. Hope has failed. Israel thought she didn't need the Lord thanks to her citadels, worship songs, the horns of the altar. But those citadels, those horns could not save her from death. If it wasn't clear before, it should be now as Israel's casket is lowered into the ground. Time's up, party's over, music dies. The funeral slideshow is queued up of Israel's life, but instead of sentimental songs and uh, images of the good times that Israel had, the slideshow is a demonstration that it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to end this way. Look at Amos 5.4. For the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. 
or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. The slideshow of Israel's life at her funeral shows that Israel was warned. The Lord again and again invited Israel back to himself. But now it's too late. The time of seeking and living is over. But not for us. Funerals are not for the dead, but for the living. We know what Israel chose. And we read about how she was judged. But like I said at the beginning, what happened to Israel is meant to serve as a warning and an invitation to us today. Will you seek the Lord and live? Will you seek the Lord and live? What would it mean for you to seek the Lord who is at the very center of this book? Suddenly there's an abrupt interruption in the tone of this funeral. The clouds part. The camera pans out so that we won't miss this. In a world of injustice and death, we see Amos 5.8, the one who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the the earth. The Lord is his name. He brings destruction on the strong and it falls on the fortress. Is this who you're seeking? This God? He is the great disruptor. And he has turned the lives of many of you in this room upside down. It hasn't always been very much fun. Sometimes it has meant great suffering. But the same Lord who brings destruction on the strong brings life to those who humble themselves before this great God, those who truly seek him. The same God whose justice falls on the proud will lift the humble to the heavens. So has this God turned the darkness of your pride into the dawn of life? Has this God summoned the healing waters of his spirit and poured it over your weary soul? Do you know his name? His name is the Lord Jesus. He came in humility to a broken down house, the nation of Israel. He rebuked those who took pride in religious ritual and their keeping of religious rules. He lived a life of righteousness and justice, not neglecting to show compassion and generosity. He gave himself so that we might seek him and live. And his death pours contempt on all our pride. The Lord's life, death, and resurrection changes everything. And the empty tomb invites us to seek him and know eternal life. This name has turned the world upside down. His name is why Ronnie and Jess are going out for the sake that others might know his name. So the question that we are left with this morning is, has his name turned your world upside down? Has the coming of Christ Jesus changed everything in your life?
when the judge comes again and glory, time's up, the party's over, and the music will die. But for those who have prepared for his coming, who choose to return to him, to seek him and live, time will have just begun. The party will just be getting started. And the music will be out of this world. So let him come. Let him come in righteousness and life. Let his justice flow like water and Christ's righteousness like an unfailing stream. May the Lord Jesus cleanse away all the pollution in your life with his ever-flowing streams of righteousness until in Christ we are all made new. So will you open the doors of your life and let the floodgates in? He is coming. Are you prepared to meet your God? You can meet him today by faith in Christ, by turning from your sin and trusting in him. So will you seek this one that we see in Amos, this holy judge, this righteous God in Christ? And maybe for the first time, Be up for the change that comes by truly living in and for his name. Let's pray. Lord, who but you could turn the darkness of our hearts into the morning of life through Christ? Who but you could summon the spirit that we might know life in your name. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to humble us, that we might come to an end of ourself and see Christ lifted up, crucified and risen, that we might seek you and live. Lord, there is none like you, the king of creation, and the King of our hearts. So help us to behold you by faith. Help us to walk in repentance together. Lord, we pray that your righteousness would come. That you would cleanse away all unrighteousness in us. And that we might see the life of Christ in ourselves and in one another. Not take pride, but to give you the glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.